Infowars, the debunked website from Alex Jones, they had a, a thing where they asked uh, college students, what are you, what's more ethical, um, capitalism or socialism? And it's, it's going to this idea that if you're free to, to become rich, that's ethical. If you are told by the government what to do and they steal your land, that's unethical. And it's just very black and white. And even me as, as an older adult, I'm having a hard time navigating all these terms and seeing what it means to to whom and what's the history behind all, all these terms. So, so we get to the point of like, how can we communicate to, to the public that, that there is socialist things already in place, but like you say, there's even more efficient ways to do things if a democratic socialist was elected. That, that's, when it, that's what you, it comes down to is simply saying you're already pro-socialist on all these different things. You don't want to give up your social security. People on Medicaid don't want to give it up. All these military people who in the barber shops who claim they hate socialism and Obama's a communist and you say, okay, you're going to lose your VA insurance or your Medicaid and they look at you like, what are you crazy? I'm not paying for a private health insurance plan. Well, that's socialist. So we're already a socialist country in some respects, like all other industrial societies since World War II. The question is, are we efficient in the use of tax money and in the deployment of these socialist programs? I would say, I would agree with most conservatives, we're not. And I think liberals would agree with that too. But quickly, the why are we like that? Why are we so allergic to admitting we like social programs, I blame that on two things. One, Anglo-Saxon liberal traditions. The British are similar or used to be similar. That um, if you look at the radical Whig traditions in Britain after the English Revolution in the 17th century, um, you know, uh, John Trenchard and these guys, if you look at what our founding fathers were reading, if even some of the loyalists, okay, the people who didn't want to break away, it's all about individual freedom and not trusting government and not trusting the state and not trusting the monarchy and even sometimes not trusting parliament because it can be too corrupt and elitist. So there's this kind of radical liberal Whig tradition that infuses everything that Americans and British think about when you, when you talk about government, which makes it very hard for Americans and British people, even today, to see government as a good thing. I would say that culture, it goes back to the British Whig tradition. It was inherited by the Americans. It informed the American Revolution. And so while continental Europeans and the industrialization countries have always been maybe ambivalent, they don't want a state that takes away their freedom, but they kind of look to the state to be an arbiter, to make sure that things are more more equal than not or fair or to protect them. Americans and British people, even those who are living off of the state, people in the military, the government, you know, not, not working the private sector day in their life, still have this mentality that the state is somehow out to get them or oppress it. So let's start with that. But I think despite all of that, during the New Deal, we were moving in the same direction as Britain was, you know, and they eventually, with the beverage report, decided to have a welfare state, and certainly continental Europe. I think the, the, the biggest paradox and in some ways tragedy is World War II, because 
we benefited so much from World War II because we could be both the greatest producer in the world and the greatest consumer while all our competitors were destroyed for a generation, right? Either we helped destroy them, like Japan or Germany, who were really big competitors in economics, in trade, or we, you know, Britain, France, and these other countries were destroyed after World War II. So we had this kind of 20-year period where Americans and all these baby boomers, everyone really thought, you know what, capitalism is awesome. We don't need welfare. We all got great insurance through our jobs. We can have one person working, have two cars, live in the suburbs. Everyone gets to go to college, GI Bill. You know, who, who needs the state? So the, the New Deal kind of was seen as this experiment that we only needed for a little while. Capitalism works. The economy is growing. Well, that was artificial. Neither before 1945 nor since 1965 or 70 has America really been more productive per capita than other countries, especially if you look per hour because we tend to work more hours. We had this brief window where other countries were destroyed. But once Germany and Japan and all these other countries caught up to us, the only way we would continue to live at this high level we were at, Nixon was like, okay, we'll leave the gold standard and we'll start doing it by deficit financing. Right? If you look at the finance industry, it grows a lot since the 1970s. I think it was only 10% of our GDP in 1970, and by the 90s or 2000, it was 25%. So the generation of credit, living on credit, having the Chinese and the British kind of, you know, um, provide us credit, that's been the way we've created a myth that America is still this great economic power. But like every other country, what we should have done is said, you know what, we need to distribute income more fairly, we need to have a, a good social safer education, we need to take you know the insurance companies out of delivering all health care, and we, and we haven't done it because of this myth, the longer-term Anglo-Saxon liberal myth, I would argue, and this short-term experience after World War II, where we really believed that capitalism and low unemployment and free markets would solve all our problems in perpetuity, which was artificial. Does that make sense? So what we're really dealing with is like a status quo traditionalist perspective versus a more progressive radical perspective. But in the last 10 minutes of our show, I want to discuss something that came up in in one of the shows that plays on the station, uh, Democracy Now! Uh, They talked about how both the shooter in New Zealand and the one who shot the the synagogue uh, in Philadelphia and even the guy who shot... um, a camp in um, in Europe uh, a few years back, they all had this white genocide conspiracy theory that, that the Jews are replacing the the majority population with immigrants and that they are uh, destroying the infrastructure and Christianity and, and the world uh, through some type of manipulation. Um, isn't that pretty much a Nazi propaganda? Yeah, or, or as I mentioned, how to bring like the myth of Judeo-Bolshevism. The idea that there's a a Jewish world conspiracy, whether it was the Sanhedrin that Napoleon created after the French Revolution, 
or the you know that that was meeting in the graveyard in Prague to plot how they're going to take over the world. The protocols, the elders of Zion. Um, this is a pretty typical right wing version of a of a modern right wing conspiracy theory. Um, so I don't find it surprising. I mean, what's what Hanabrick argues, and what's interesting is how Muslims and and in our country, um, you know, Latino immigrants have replaced the Jews or supplemented this myth in many ways. It's not just Jews anymore. It's now, you know, global Islamic terror that's out to get us. It and it because it's magical thinking. It doesn't really matter. Um, I think about a few. A, a few years ago, there was an anti-immigrant rally in Poland, you know, where they have this now right-wing proto-fascist government. And it was all, it was anti-Muslim, basically. I mean, that's what the Poles were worried about, that being part of the EU, they were all, it was around the time that Miracle was inviting and all the Syrian refugees. And in one of their major cities, uh, the one where my wife is born, and we, we go there pretty often, Wrocław, the images in this rally they were at, the anti-immigrant, were not Muslim. They were hanging Orthodox Jews. Like there were, there were nooses with Orthodox Jews hanging from it. And it was so ironic. It shows you how there's nothing coherent to this stuff, even though it was about Muslims and Syrians, because Poles and Ukrainians and East Europeans are so used to vilifying Jews, it was almost like, well, we're going to, we're, we're angry at other, at foreigners Let's hang some Jews. Like, it doesn't even make sense. If anything, the European nationalist right is actually in agreement with the Israeli right, the Jewish right of Netanyahu, that Muslim terrorism is dangerous and we don't want more Muslims, right? So think of that paradox. It's so irrational. And even though it's, it's anti-Muslim in, in, in kind of practical, modern terms, they still somehow find a way to insinuate Jews into it. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't have to, right? I mean, for these people who are angry and semi-educated, they can draw all sorts of kind of connections. You know, Mike Flynn's son is talking about porn, underage porn rings out of, a, you know, Hillary Clinton's organized out of a pizza parlor. It doesn't matter, right? And that's what makes it dangerous because you can't argue. So then, it's not based so, so then, on the other side, in the progressive circles, there is a vilification of, of Jews because of people like Stephen Miller and others who are siding with with the the alt right, or like you mentioned Netanyahu and other people who are working with Trump. And there's this idea that instead of saying well Jews can be on either side because they're people and they and they they have different political views suddenly now there's the the evil Jew who's trying to manipulate elections in America and trying to force Israeli um like agenda on the world so uh do you see that as well that there's also uh using the Jew as the symbol of of the enemy on, on the progressive side i so I think it's it's less magical thinking when you see it on the left. It's you got to you got to you got to be really um, careful when you're criticizing uh, Jewish or Israeli policy on the left. But it can be an authentic desire 
to support Palestinian rights, right? Like Omar's comments. She wasn't as delicate as she could have been. But the reality is America is pretty unqualified in support of Israel, and not just Israel, but the right-wing parties right now in Israel who are not particularly interested in the two-state solution and are still willing to build settlements, right? And, and for what the Palestinians. Now, I'd say, uh, as a historian looking at all the things going on in the world, it is fascinating how much attention is paid to Israel by the left. You would, you would think that the left would look at the human rights abuses in North Korea, Russia, China, you know, other parts of Asia and Africa and say, you know what? The Palestinians are being treated like crap, but there are a lot of other people who don't have access to water, food, you know, can't fend for themselves or being herded into camps, slavery. So there, I would, I would say we need to be a little more careful about dismissing left-wing critiques as anti-Semitic because there's a, there's definitely an element of truth to the fact that Israel is oppressive, that there are a number of, of, uh, you know, Jewish businessmen who, and why, you know, if you're, if you're Jewish and you're worried about Israel, you're going to fund APAC and that's not anti-Semitic. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but if that then yields a policy that oppresses Palestinians a young Palestinian politician is probably going to bring that up. That doesn't make them anti-Semitic, right? Yeah. So, so I'm I, I'm I'm not trying to um, whitewash the anti-Semitism on the left, but I think it's less hypocritical and contradictory than the anti-Semitism on the right. Well, let let me throw a wrench into this because as you. Um, you know, talk about these subjects, people will throw at me, well, Hitler was Jewish, or there was a group of Jews that Hitler um, forgave or looked the other way, and they were part of his inner circle as compared to the ones that he was... Um, really, I, I'd love to hear who they were as a German historian. Who are the Jews who were part of Hitler's inner circle? Supposedly, one of my friends told me there's a book written about that, and that... Um, that he was more interested in people's politics than he was interested in their race when it came down to it. So kind of like a, a Donald Trump situation where he likes Jews who vote like him. But that, it, that's not true. First of all, Donald Trump has no principle. Donald Trump is a is a New York businessman. His personal politics. Maybe we even talked about this last time. I'm, he voted Democrat for fifty years. He's not a traditional conservative. Certainly, he's not a fascist. He's a guy who likes to win, who has very, no principles. And when he saw that the Palin wing, the Tea Party wing of Republicans loved him, and they like hearing about guns and border walls and nasty things about Muslims, that's what he did to win. And now that's a vicious cycle he's in. I don't. Trump, in some ways, is is a lot of, you know, he almost is obscuring the larger issues. Trump was a vehicle, but it didn't start with Trump. I mean, Palin, even Gingrich, the Tea Party, there's there's a very angry group of right-wing um, um, right-wing kind of I don't, I, don't, I don't know what you want to call it. They're, they're not conservatives, but populists, nationalists, whatever you want to call it, who see, see Trump as their current kind of, you know, 
defender or or um, the guy who's going to somehow fix all their problems. But Trump isn't really a fascist. I wouldn't compare Trump to Hitler is what I'm saying. Hitler really hated Jews. Like Himmler and all these other, he really blamed Jews for all this crazy stuff. And when push came to shove and they're in the middle of World War II and they thought, you know, the, the Bolsheviks who they had just attacked were were in a life and death struggle with with Germany, you know, for the future of Europe and the world, they decided to start killing all the Jews, women, children, people who were no threat to them whatsoever. I just I don't think it's it's useful to make an analogy between what the Nazis were doing and Trump's government is as kind of dysfunctional as it is and and racist as it sometimes appears. It's just I mean, his his kids are his grandkids are Jewish. One of his chief advisors is Jewish. I mean, there, there's a there's a point at which this stuff breaks down, right? You know, the analogies of of getting right wing racist people to vote for you that's true everywhere in Europe and America right now, and it's the same thing that Franco and Mussolini and Hitler did. But when you start to look at the national distinctiveness of these movements, um, the Republican Party is still more or less a democratic party, which has a right wing, which seems to be somewhat anti-democratic and racist and a liberal. But um, I really wouldn't make that analogy. Have you have you ever heard the conspiracy theory that it was the the reform Jews who brought about the Nazi party? No, I mean these these things are all fat. Explain this to me. How did the reform Jews bring about the Nazi so party? So I was listening to Israel National Radio, and uh, Tamara Jonah has a rabbi on the show, and and he's like, I wrote this book, and it explains everything. And I'm like, okay. So according to him, you know, I have a crypto Jewish background, so my ancestors were were Jews who were forced into Catholicism. So he claims, just like a lot of anti-Semites, that those guys came back to Judaism, uh, either they were followers of Sabbatai B or of uh, Franco, uh, uh, Jacob Frank, um, and, uh, and that they were infiltrating in, in traditional Judaism. And then when Napoleon and, and those guys liberated the Jews, they took over and they started pushing for liberalism and all kinds of um, ungodly things. And then that somehow, some like that that apostate form of Judaism brought about Hitler through I guess uh, well, that, yeah that last step that's the that's the thing the fact that emancipated Jews wanted liberalism makes perfect sense why would a ethnic minority that's half a percent of most societies or one percent you know want a right-wing nationalist feudal state they're going to want freedom and liberalism equality before the law and and if you work hard and go to the best schools you're going to do well in life i mean that in theory is the basis of all western society and the jews embraced it because they didn't benefit from being in a nationalist peasant authoritarian country right but that's not a conspiracy theory i mean most people who work hard and are bright and believe in education and and kind of civil rights are going to push for liberalism. Um, but I don't understand how that, per se, facilitated Nazism, except that resentful, angry, 
white guys who felt that modernity had left them by saw this liberalism and blamed it on Jews. You know, that's like that. That's the worst kind of blaming the victim. I don't. I'm not following how Reform Judaism created Nazism, except and maybe I'm 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 just I'm just spitballing here. Right wing Zionists are not huge fans of liberal cosmopolitanism, right? They they like that Israel is a ethnic ethno religiously pure state in their minds. They don't want Palestinians to have kids. They have many of the same principles as the alt-right, right? They're not huge on immigration. So if it's one of these people, they've been angry for years. If you take, if you take the right-wing Zionists, they don't like Jewish cosmopolitanism and assimilationism and the diaspora. They think that's what weakened Judaism and made it vulnerable. So maybe that's the gist of it, that somehow liberal Jews created the environment in which there would naturally be this kind of grassroots racist reaction and that they should have been going back to Israel like they were supposed to and to create this great Israeli state. Who knows? I don't know. But then they throw that Hitler was pro-Palestinian exodus or like exodus to Palestine and that the people that didn't do it brought about the Holocaust. Like it's just... Insane, the well, kind of stuff people are trying this to... This is actually my next research project. I'm looking at the so-called Nazi Jewish question. It's actually what I'm doing research on. Um, there was a period from 33 to maybe 37 or 38 when Eichmann and the SS Office for Jewish Immigration was trying to get some Jews to Palestine. They were conflicted about it. I mean, I've got the primary documents. On the one hand, they wanted... Jews out of Germany, right? On the other hand, helping them and financing their passage to Israel, which might might actually end up creating a Jewish state, made a lot of Nazis uncomfortable after so many decades of saying how the Jews are dangerous and we don't want them to have too much power. So they, they were actually ambivalent about it, not quite sure what to do. They ended up sponsoring it. There was even something called the Havara Agreement, which helped you know, get, help basically Jews get their money out of Germany so they could go have something to live on in Israel. The British weren't happy about it and the Palestinians weren't happy about it. So in addition to the Nazis themselves being ambivalent about losing capital in the middle of the Great Depression to finance Jewish immigration to Israel, the British and Palestinians saw it as just creating more chaos. So ultimately they stopped sponsoring Jewish immigration to Israel, I think around 37 or 38. But they actually then tried to get a bunch of Jews to Shanghai um, because there was a brief period where Shanghai was was open to Jewish immigration. Um, I mean, we could go. This is this is neither here nor there. But there's just no evidence that the Nazis were in a positive way pro-Zionist well, because they were radical racists. They didn't think Jews belonged in Germany, and because they hadn't yet thought about killing them. Anywhere that anything that would get them out made them happy. So, in that sense, I guess in a, ne- in a kind of negative way, they were pro-Zionist because they were helping Jews get out. Does that make sense? Well, one last thing, um, I have to push back on the idea that that Israelis are like the alt-right because that's that was a situation that happened here in Texas. Um, the 
I can't remember his name. One of the Albright guys came to Texas A&M University, and he mm-hmm. was saying, you know, the Jews are doing great. They have their own nation state, and we want to have our own nation state too, and what's the problem? And then uh, uh, Hillel Rabbi stood up and said, well, I don't know where you're getting all this um, hatred towards Jews. Um, if you were to sit down and read the Torah with me, uh, we would talk about love and things like that. And 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 that's where he said, well, you guys are uh, a racially biased state in Israel. We want a racially biased state as well in America. And my, well, my anti-Semitic, assuming all Jews have the same. I'm not saying Israel per se is racist. I'm saying that the right-wing groups, Likud and then further to the right, have a view towards Jewish nationhood. What's the name of this young um, woman who's one of the ministers? I forget her name. She says some really crazy stuff. Uh, Baleen? Um, excuse me? Jesse Baleen or something like that? No, it's something else. Um, anyway, um, they really are... are making arguments as if Israel is a ethno-religiously Jewish state that has these kind of Palestinian guests who they, they really would prefer aren't there. They don't really want to give them their own state, right? So there's these kind of second-class citizens. The center-left in Israel and the labor part, they're very much kind of Western liberals who would who, who believe that Palestinians who live in Israel have full citizenship and should have all the same civil rights, and at the same time, believe that the Palestinians who want deserve their own state. So I'm not arguing that all Jews are all Israelis. I mean, that's that's exactly the problem, is <clears throat> there are a lot of evangelical Christians and all-right people who will say what sounds like positive things about Jews, but assume that all Jews think alike and are all pro-Israel or pro-Zionist, as you suggested earlier, Jews, like any ethno-religious group, have diverse range of opinions, and Israel, Israeli society is, is really divided over a lot of these issues. Um, and so not all Jews are Zionist or certainly ethno-Zionist, whatever you want to call it, um, and that alt-right guy is, is wrong to suggest that. But there are many many Israelis, I don't know a lot of American Jews, who have a, have a very ethnocentric view of what it means to be Israeli, and that is that is potentially problematic. I understand where it comes from. It's in many ways an outgrowth of the Holocaust. But, but we, we tried to assimilate and live in all these different places and follow everyone else's laws, and look what happened to us. You know, we understand that um, historically, but it's... Yeah, for a lot of alt-right people, they love to see that. They're like, yeah, every every ethnic group should just have their own country. And that is that is something the Nazis used to say. You know what? You don't, you know, the Jew, if, if you don't like the fact that we're treating Jews badly, take them. You know, we want our own ethnic country. So that just devolves into ethnocentrism and nationalism. So, um, so why don't the, the alt-right guys move back to Germany or Poland or wherever they come from? <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, it's 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 worrisome. So I, I guess we've covered a lot of different things. Um, I hope it was somewhat coherent. I was just kind of trying to to provide some context. Um, 
But it really would help. What I've talked about with some of my political science colleagues here in Florida is would help to actually have conversations where, that are organic with people who hold a lot of these views because they're not monolithic either, right? Not everyone who votes for Trump is anti-immigrant or anti-trade. Not every person who's, um, you know, critical of, of, of immigration is racist. So it's, it would be nice to talk to, to people who have these views. I don't, I don't think the majority of people who are voting Republican are really alt-right, but a large percentage, a large minority are, and, and, you know, and that kind of, kind of undermines their, their legitimacy more generally. It'd be interesting to talk to people on, on the other side and say, you know, what, where where do you stand on a lot of these issues? So, so um, and where are you getting your opinion? So my mentor, he's part of the ten percent of conservative Jews in America, and mm-hmm. the reason he voted for Trump is because he cares about Supreme Court um, justices. So he doesn't care about Trump's um, picadillos and, and the way, like, he actually likes the way he treats people because he feels that. He's honest that the Democrats pretend to not be racist and pretend not to be misogynist and that with the Republicans you get what you get. But for him is that he wants justices who are going to push the agenda of the right. But I'm like, okay, so you get them to stop abortion or whatever, but they're destroying the environment and they're taking away all people's rights and they're taking away... um, like the programs to help people. So it's going to be chaos just because you want, you know, that right of abortion be taken away. So they're like one issue voters. And a lot of them also, well, he supports Israel. And that's the only thing that matters. And the whole world can blow up, but as long as he supports Israel. And and I can't stand that. Like to me, it's like as, as morally conservative as I want to be, I'm not going to put up with one or two issues and then everything else gets thrown out. So, yeah. So to end on a hopeful note, if we don't have a global financial crisis or a world war, which are the things that triggered full on fascism in Italy and Germany and a lot of these other states, the demography is in favor of a more progressive, what you're calling democratic socialist, I would just say more typical modern industrial state. Um, because as you know, because there aren't that many, you know, white people who have right wing views left to win elections, right? At some point, demography takes over young white people and women, young white women and ethnic minorities have a different set of kind of values. So I, in a way, I, I understand why there are a lot of whether it's the Brexit voters or the people where we're calling alt right, the Trump voters, um, they are they are worried about a world that that is run by people who don't look and, and act like them. Um, it's not wealthy Jewish or capitalist voters in New York and San Francisco, as you say. They want low taxes and pro-Israeli policy. Um, but you know, as long as we remain a democracy and have peaceful transition of power. I don't think the the movement we're seeing right now, these 
these alt-right movements, they don't last very long. They usually implode because they're, they're more or less protest movements. They have no policies, right? So um, I'm actually more optimistic, especially after the midterms, than I was a few years ago. I was really worried Trump might do something crazy. But, you know, frankly, he doesn't seem to be very adventurous. He doesn't want to start foreign wars. Um, he's not real good at pushing an agenda of any kind even when his party controlled both houses. So I'm just hoping that people start voting more reliably for, for rational, empirically grounded policies, and that might mean voting Democrat, foreseeable future, and we won't have to worry about the alt-right because they won't be able to, to get enough people in the power again because they're always there. Well, third of society and all these societies is proto-fascist, I would argue. They don't really like constitutions and separations of powers. They're not pluralist. They don't think it's cool that different people have different religions or races. They actually, that bothers them. But they're just going about their business. And then global crises, uh, a right-wing leader who's charismatic kind of triggers them, and they coalesce, right, for a brief period of time. But then that kind it breaks apart. And this third is always there, but it's hard to get a majority. Hitler never got more than 37%, even at the worst moment of the Great Depression. So maybe that's an optimistic way to end. Well, we would love for you to come back on our show and tell us about your, your new research project. Um, your, uh, your book, Hitler's Monsters, uh, has been on the top uh, list of, of shows listened in our podcast. So uh, I know there's a lot of interest on regarding still like what happened back then. Uh, seems like 70 years later, we're still uncovering things and, and we need to learn from the past um, so we don't make the same mistakes. So we always appreciate your expert opinion and we thank you for sharing uh, about all these different uh, subjects that are coming up, but most of all to educate the public on these very difficult topics uh, so they can make better decisions. Thank you, David. I really appreciate being on, and it's, uh, it's always good to, to be part of a contemporary conversation and not just be, be uh, working in the archives as we do as historians. So I appreciate it. I hope I hope it was helpful. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye.